So today we're uh, looking at two very short parables, Matthew 13, if you want to open your Bibles. It's only three verses, our passage today, uh, the parable of the mustard seed, which Tommy referred to, and the parable of the yeast, or the leaven. So listen here to God's word. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This is the word of God. That's the whole text, very brief, but but a lot here. May God apply it to our hearts. So I read a story about a man who died in 2003 at the age of 90. And by all accounts, according to his daughters, his friends, his neighbors, the man was incredibly poor. His house was always in a state of terrible disrepair, He never spent money on time on repairs that were needed. He wore rags. He only shopped at thrift stores and and wore secondhand clothes. Um, He didn't even own a TV. If he wanted to watch TV, he went to his neighbor's house because he didn't want to spend money on TV or the electricity to run it. But he died at the age of 90. And to everyone's shock, including his own daughter's, they discovered that this man was worth $2 million. He had $2 million in the bank and in investments, all money that he had saved and invested over the years and, of course, not spent. Now, I'm not going to go into an analysis of why did that guy live like a poor old man and not use any of the resources that he had. But the point of the story is this. Appearances can be deceiving. Everybody assumed this man was incredibly poor, and he was not. He was rich. Jesus is making a similar point in these parables about the kingdom. Appearances can be deceiving. As he describes the kingdom starting in very small and insignificant and hidden ways like a tiny little seed, and you'll see a a picture of how big a mustard seed is in a minute, or like yeast that is hidden, as it were, in dough. Jesus is saying, appearances can be deceiving, because I have come to build a kingdom that is powerful, that is extensive, that is unstoppable. And I want you to have patience. Like Tommy said, trust the process. I want you to have faith. I want you to have eyes of faith to see where I am moving. And I I think he told these parables to encourage us in the midst of the frequent discouragement that we experience. Illustrated, you know, in in the last two parables that Anthony preached on, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, There's all these battles going on and discouragement in our lives. We see people come to faith in Jesus. We see others fall away. 
We see new churches planted. We see other churches close and fail. We see way too many kids raised in Christian homes abandon the faith and want to have nothing to do with Jesus. We hear way too many stories of moral failures in Christian leaders, prominent Christian leaders. We hear way too many stories of marriages and families destroyed by sin, by besetting sin, by abuse, by all kinds of things. And, you know, as a pastor for many years, I have to be honest with you, at times, sometimes I would say, is it worth it? What's the point? It seems like we take two steps forward and three steps back. Well, I think Jesus is speaking to us in the midst of those kinds of battles, in the midst of those kinds of struggles, and he is saying, I am at work even when you cannot see it. I am building a strong and powerful kingdom. I am lighting a fire that the darkness will not and cannot put out. So trust me and trust what I'm doing in the world. These, uh, I've been meditating on these parables for a few weeks and they've been such an encouragement to my faith and I hope they, they will be to yours as well. So let's look, look at them. We're going to look at each uh, parable briefly and I'm going to spend more time than usual uh, applying them to our lives. So let's go back to the mustard seed. Uh, and this is a story of dramatic growth from small beginnings. Uh, he put another parable before them, and yeah, you may as well advance this time as I'm reading it, thanks. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all plants, of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So in Jesus' day, a mustard seed was proverbial for being something exceedingly small. Everybody knew that when he, he referred to mustard seed here. So how small are they? Here's a picture. So you see that, that little speck on the top of that finger? That's a mustard seed, a very, very small little seed. But as Jesus says, those little seeds grow into big bushes and even big trees. Pretty amazing. Uh, and in Israel in his day, some of those mustard seeds would grow into bushes that were 9 to 12 feet tall in, in one season. Pretty dramatic growth. You know, at first it's tiny. At first it's hidden. At first it's in the ground. But Jesus says, I am building a kingdom that is going to grow. So trust me and trust what I'm doing through the power of the gospel. He applies the mustard seed to our faith as well. Of course, in this passage over in Matthew 17, For I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You see, it's not the strength or the power or the size of your faith. It's a question of who are you trusting with your faith. Now, I bet in Jesus' day there were some people who heard this parable and the next one and said, wait a minute, 
If you're supposed to be the Messiah, we thought you would come with amazing power, you know, shock and awe. If Moses delivered the people of Israel from Egypt by parting the Red Sea, we're expecting you to do something even bigger than that. You know, on the scale of the special effects of a Star Wars or an Avengers movie. You know, we want you to do something big and impressive, military, political power. But Jesus is reminding them that his kingdom doesn't start that way. His kingdom starts in weakness. His kingdom starts in hidden ways. His kingdom starts in the humility of the cross. And Jesus knew, of course, how the Old Testament described him. You see it here in Isaiah 53. Yeah, is this dramatic power like a Star Wars movie? No. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He came as a tiny seed. He came in weakness. He came to suffer for us. So J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop, And he put it this way, describing the growth of the kingdom, the growth of the gospel. Its first founder was one who was poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a criminal on the cross. Its first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left the world. Its its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were most of them uneducated and ignorant men. If ever there was a religion which was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel. It started small. It started in insignificant ways. And yet history tells us that within a generation, the gospel had spread throughout the whole Roman Empire, as far east as India, as far south as Ethiopia, And according to best estimates, by the end of the first century, there were about 50,000 believers in the world. That may not seem like a lot, but that's significant growth from the time of Christ's death. But by A.D. 400, estimates are that there were 34 million believers worldwide. You see, his kingdom was on the move. And Jesus says, it is unstoppable. So when you are discouraged, and it doesn't seem like much is happening, trust me, because I'm at work. I think it's wonderful that he uses the image of a tree here in this parable. Does it remind you of anything? Well, there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, right? That we got cut off from by our sin. You go to the very last chapter of the Bible, and description of the new heavens and new earth, and what's there? A tree of life. And it says there's healing for the nations in the leaves of that tree. And Jesus has come to bring us that tree of life, to bring it to us and us to him. Except what he makes clear throughout the Gospels is there's no getting to the tree of life without the tree of death. 
We can't get to the tree of life without him suffering on the tree of death for us. He says that's the way the kingdom works. So when it seems small and when it seems like it's coming through suffering, remember that I'm at work. Okay, that's the first parable. The second parable is the parable of the yeast or the leaven. And Jesus said, and I'm using the NIV here because rather than talking about measures that we don't understand, it translates it into pounds, which we do, the, the amount of flour. He told them still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour, that's a lot of flour, until it worked all through the dough. Now, uh, I love this parable because I grew up in a bakery family. My grandfather had a bakery as a kid. I spent a lot of time at the bakery, uh, working sometime, eating a lot, <laughs> but enjoying uh, the fruit of the family, the family labors. And I watched, I watched the effect of yeast on these huge batches of dough in that bakery. And one of my pandemic hobbies this winter has been baking, getting back to baking, even, even with yeast dough. So I've been thinking about it a lot. And uh, we, these days, we buy yeast that comes like this, the, uh, the, uh, the block yeast, on the, the fresh yeast on the left, or, or the, the dry yeast at the bakery. I watch them use that, that kind on the left a lot and see the dramatic effect it would have on these huge batches of dough, and Jesus is describing a woman who's not just making a little bit of bread for one family, 60 pounds of flour, you know that, that's 12 of those five pound bags that you see at the supermarket, that's, she's making enough bread for a village, and she's going to produce something beautiful like this that you would see in a bakery. He says, the yeast of the gospel is hidden, it's invisible, but it's pervasive, and it spreads through the whole dough. And that's what's happening through the gospel at work in your lives. I remember in our family bakery seeing those big cabinets where big batches of dough would go, and they would literally double in size before they got worked into the bread or the buns or whatever they were making. And then after they worked them up, into the shapes that were going to be baked. Then they still went into other cabinets where they would rise before they went into the oven. And Jesus is saying, be patient. The gospel is at work, extending into your lives, into the church, and into the world to change not only your lives, but culture. I'm sending you out to be salt and light. I'm sending you out to be to be culture changers and culture shapers as you go out and model the gospel and care for the poor and the disenfranchised and the abused and the forgotten and the outcast, as you live out the gospel and as you share it with those who are walking in darkness and don't know their right hand from their left hand, the yeast of the gospel will work and will bear fruit. So trust in me and trust in what I am doing. I know sometimes we feel like we're being sent in this enormous war with enormous obstacles, and I feel like I'm being sent into a nuclear war with a BB gun. Jesus says, no. 
You have a lot more than a BB gun. You have the power of the gospel, which is able to change lives and change cultures and change structures. Well, let's turn to application. I'm doing more than I would usually do in a sermon because I think these little parables are begging for it. Uh, how do we apply these, these parables? And I wrestled at first, okay, these are interesting passages, but what does it mean for me, Lord? Uh, you've probably heard that in Bible study, it's always good to ask three questions about a passage. Number one, what does it say? Number two, what does it mean? Number three, how does it apply? Or how should I respond in faith and repentance? And I hope I've given you a little bit of one and two. What do, what do these parables say? What do they mean? But now, how do they apply? So if I'm standing before the Lord, overwhelmed by what he's done for me in the gospel, and if I say, like we sing in uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, how do you want, you've loved me so much. You've come so far from me. You laid down your life for me. You gave everything for me. What's an appropriate response? It's not to try to make the Lord into your servant and to say to him, Lord, I want you to help me build my kingdom. That is not the right response, as we know. And we prayed that in the prayer of confession. The right response is to say, Lord, you've given everything for me. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I live out your kingdom values in this world and represent you well? You know, I think implicitly in all this, Jesus is saying, I am changing the world, and I want you to come along with me. I'm changing the world, and I want you to sign up to be part of that change. Enlist in my army and follow me. So the three points we want to look at in the application. Seek first his kingdom. Secondly, pray for the growth of the kingdom. They're in the outline that you see in the app. And and thirdly, commit yourself to the plan of the king. So first of all, seek first his kingdom. Uh, I think when Jesus says this back in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's saying, I'm calling you to value what I value more than anything else, to love what I love more than anything else, to say, I'm not going to be pursuing all my selfish and personal aims. Lord, I want what you want. I want to live for your kingdom. I have a short life to live here on earth. I want to make a difference for you. I want to seek your kingdom. And to do that, it means we need to walk by faith and see where he is at work. I love these verses, for we do do not walk by faith, but by sight. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I think implied in all this, we should be saying, Lord, give me eyes of faith to see where you're at work in the world, 
so that I can follow you and do your will. And what is he doing in the work? Here's another passage that I love where he exhorts us to open our eyes. Here in John 4, he says, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Open your eyes, and you will see that my kingdom is on the move. Yeah, at first it might seem invisible. At first it might seem like an old man in rags. At first it might seem hidden, like yeast is hidden in dough. But if you really open your eyes with eyes of faith, you will see that there is a significant harvest out there that I am on the move. So how do we do that? Where is the Lord at work? I love the work that I'm currently doing with Surge because it gives me access to stories from all over the world from our workers all the time. And, and when I talk to them on Zoom, I'm hearing what the Lord is doing in their hearts and what the Lord is doing on their field. Now, the rest of you don't have a job like that, but there are other ways that we can get exposed to what God is doing. I love the missions moment updates, the emails that our church sends out every week that Carrie Silver works on. Lots of windows into where God is at work in the workers and the ministries that we support. Pay attention to them. Pray over them. Uh, there are missions trips that will come. Again, one of the best ways to have your eyes open to what God is doing is to go on missions trips. And when the pandemic is over, that's going to be able to happen. Go if you can. Support others to go. There are workers that we support around the world that come in and out of the church all the time. Get time with them and hear their stories and hear what the Lord is doing. Paul and Lynn are here for a season. Jeff and Nina from North Africa will be around this summer and many others. Listen to the stories and say, Lord, ignite my heart. Give me faith. Give me enthusiasm about what you are doing. What's the Lord doing in right here in the Philadelphia area, many things. And, and he says, I want you to be praying about those things and be encouraged in your faith about where I am in move, on the move. Secondly, pray for kingdom growth. Here's a great quote of uh, John Piper's that I love. He says, prayer is the coupling of primary and secondary causes. It is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. Does that remind you of anything? To me, it reminds me of the first Back to the Future movie <laughs> where, where they got connected to the lightning bolt to get the 1.21 gigawatts of power that'll come down into the DeLorean to enable it to do time travel. Well, Viper is saying, you know, we have limp wires, but when we're connected to the Lord and his power, there is amazing power for the kingdom as we pray. And Jesus, in many places, commands us to pray for the growth of the kingdom that would come through us, us involved in it. And specifically, he says here in Matthew 9, how we are supposed to pray. He said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Send out laborers. When you pray that, what are you praying for? Are you praying that the Lord will send a few missionary workers overseas? 
are even praying that the Lord would send our best overseas? I think when we pray that, the Lord wants us to be saying, Lord, I know that all of us, myself included, are called to be laborers in the harvest. All of us. So when I pray for that, I'm praying, Lord, empower me, enable me, give me faith, and send me out. And it might be overseas, but it might just be across the street. And frankly, sometimes going across the street is harder than going overseas. But send me. And this applies to all ages, all stages of life. I heard a great story from one of our families uh, in the Middle East this week. Their little four-year-old daughter at school recently asked her teacher a question, a very simple question, four years old. She said to her teacher, she asked her teacher, do you know Jesus? It happens that this teacher is originally from the Ukraine, had some sort of Christian background. And when this little gal's mom came to pick her up at the end of the school day, the teacher wanted to talk to her. She had tears in her eyes. She said, your daughter asked me this question, and and I can't get it out of my head. And I sort of have a Christian background. I want to raise my kids to be Christians. Will you talk with me? That was a four-year-old that opened that door to talk about Jesus. That can happen to any of us. I love the fact that one of the men's groups in our church right now They've made a commitment with each other. They've said every one of us is going to maintain a list of three people all the time that we are praying for, people who don't know Jesus yet. Three people that we're praying praying that our love for them would grow, that our boldness to talk about Jesus would grow, and that the Lord would work in their hearts and open doors for us to talk with them. Isn't that great? They're responding to Jesus' prayer to say, Lord, yeah, we want to be laborers. Uh, in the harvest field. The third application that we see, I'm calling commit yourself. Commit yourself to the plan of the king. And here's a fascinating passage. It's a little intense, but but it's really a wonderful passage from John 12, where Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. You see what Jesus is saying in that passage? He's saying there's a death and resurrection pattern, not only in his life, but in our lives as well. He went to the cross because of the joy set before him, the joy of redeeming his people, you and me. And he was willing to go through death because it would be followed by that resurrection. In this passage, he's saying that is the pattern for all believers. Death to self, death to my kingdom, death to just living for myself, followed by a resurrection that will bear much fruit in seeing other lives impacted by the gospel. And Jesus is saying, 
like I said before, I'm changing the world. I'm inviting you to come with me and be part of it because of the joy set before you. Stop living for those simple, temporary things that are going to go away in the blink of an eye and live for what will last for all eternity. I'm sending you out as my representatives. I heard a great analogy from a pastor in North Carolina. He said, all too often, uh, we're like this. Imagine your favorite football team, say the Eagles, when we start up again in the fall, uh, running their first offensive play. And they get into the huddle. The quarterback gets the play call from the, from the sidelines. He calls the play. He tells the other 10 players what the play is. They clap their hands, and they're supposed to go run the play, right? He said, what would happen if the other 10 players, rather than running the play, just walk over to the sideline and discuss the play? <laughs> what would the coach think about that? What would the fans think about that? You know, they go to the sideline and say, so, what do you think of that play call? Why do you think the coach picked it? How do you think the defense will respond? Do you think it'll work? You know, no. That's not the time to discuss a play. That's the time to run the play. And this pastor said that all too often as Christians, we spend a lot more time discussing the plays than running them. Jesus, now, I know it's not always easy to figure out what's the play that the Lord has called me to run at this point in my life. But, but Jesus is saying, I want you to be open to that. I want you to hear my voice. I want you to run the plays that I'm giving to you that can make a difference in the world. And I want you to step out in faith. I know it's, it's safer and easier to walk to the sideline and talk about it. But he says, I want you to step out in faith. Again, like I said, it might be harder to go across the street than across the ocean. But I want you to step out in faith as my kingdom is growing and believing that I am with you. Okay, to go back to the beginning, do you ever get discouraged about the lack of progress that you see around you, about the obstacles that we face, the lack of spiritual fruit, the barriers that we encounter all the time, Jesus is saying, I want you to remember and I want you to believe that my kingdom ultimately is unstoppable and I want you to be part of that with me. Invest in it. There will be joy in the journey. You will be investing in things that will last forever. I want you to be able to say, Jesus said, I want you to be able to say, yeah, it wasn't easy. I gave up some things. I sacrificed. I suffered. But in following Jesus and doing his will and living for his kingdom, it was so worth it. And there has been so much joy. That's what he wants you to be able to say. So here's another remarkable quote from John Piper that I've meditated on a lot. He said, he once said, give yourself to those things that will give you joy in a thousand years. Think about that for a while. Give yourself to those things that will give you joy in a thousand years. Woo! What's going to give you joy in a thousand years? 
There's a lot of things that take up our daily lives that will be meaningless, totally meaningless in a thousand years when we're home with him. But what will endure? What are those heavenly treasures? What will endure a thousand years or ten thousand years from now? I think it all boils down to a couple of basic things. Your relationship with the Lord will endure and give you joy a thousand years from now. But also the people that you invest in for the sake of the kingdom, that you love with the gospel, that you introduce to Jesus, that you pray into the kingdom, that's going to bring you unbelievable joy a thousand years from now. And Jesus wants us to invest in those things now and have that eternal perspective all the time. Does that make sense? That's what he's calling us to in these passages. So let me close with this quote. This is uh, from a Tim Keller devotional that Sue and I just read this week, and I love it. It says, because of Jesus' resurrection, I know that I will be resurrected. And so it is not my status in this world, but in the next that defines me. It is not my status in this world, but in the next that defines me. That's the kind of perspective the Lord wants us to have as we reflect on these parables and apply them to our lives. May God give us grace to do that and follow him Follow him into the world. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. Thank you for these remarkable little stories, these parables that you've given to us for our faith, for our encouragement, and for our growth. And I do pray that you'd apply them to our hearts, help us to understand each one of us, your will for our lives. What does it mean for each one of us to run the plays that you've given to us? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Apply your word to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.